This episode is sponsored by Factor Meals, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guests for episode 204 are Tim and Sue Lee. They are married and they currently perform together as Bark. Tim is perhaps best known as co-frontman for The Windbreakers out of Mississippi. You're right now hearing perhaps his biggest hit, All That Stuff, from Terminal 1985. Tim recorded with The Windbreakers on and off throughout the 80s, also participating in other collaborations like A Beat Temptation, an album with Rain Parade's Matt Piucci, one with Howard Wolfing, who is the fellow that booked this interview, and recording a couple of solo albums at the end of the decade before going into semi-retirement, returning in the late 90s, early aughts, with a new batch of solo albums, which morphed into The Tim Lee Three when Susan Bowerly, his wife, decided to learn bass and started songwriting as well. Sue then switched from bass to drums for Bark. In total, that comes to around 30 albums for Tim. Today, we'll discuss Love Minus Action from Bark's new album, Loud, Magnolia Plates, a Sue song from the Tim Lee Three from their album 33 and a Third, 2015, Like Sand from Tim's solo album Crawdad, released in 1998, the title track from The Windbreakers, Run, from 1987, with lyrics by Sherry Cothran, the bass player for The Windbreakers at the time. We conclude by listening to Dead Guy Story, which Tim and Sue wrote for Tim's album Concrete Dog from 2006. For more information, please see bark-loud.com. Plus, there's still information up at timlee3.com, and I will link to selections from these various projects from the posts associated with this episode at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, where you can also find links to subscribe to the podcast, or better yet, subscribe to my supporter feed, which is ad-free, and if you get it off my Patreon site, we'll give you access to my detailed episode notes. Let's get going. I will have played a little bit of all that stuff by the Windbreakers from your first full album, Terminal 1985. However, I have just gotten through this fine book that the people cannot see because we're not recording video. <laughs> I saw a dozen faces, the diary of a never was, Tim, that you wrote during the pandemic. So I know that you did not see this as your first album. I mean, this was like the third set of recordings plus some side project. You know, this was not a starting point. You know, it kind of helped get the Windbreakers on the map. We'd put out the Any Monkey with a Typewriter EP, and which we'd recorded with Mitch Easter in 1982 or three, something like that. And, you know, that kind of... before that. Yeah. But, I mean, the Any Monkey was the record that people started paying attention to. Yeah. And it set it up where, like, Sam Berger at Homestead Records offered to put out our full-length album, which we just sort of pieced together with whatever budget we could scrape together. <laughs> and, yeah, and Terminal turned out to be a pretty good record. And, you know, it's had some staying power and... So pretty proud of it, even at its advanced age. <laughs> All right. So around 30 releases later, we're looking at Love Minus Action by your, I don't want to say new because it's been, what, a decade now that the two of you have played as Bark? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. I think this spring will be the 10th anniversary. The new record is called Loud. Do we want to say, a li- well, first let's, let's sort of deal with the elephant in the room, that there are two of you here. This is not the Tim Lee thing. No, this is Sue as a full co-writer. In fact, the only, you know, it's just the two of you, right? Is this one where it's definitely just the two of you? Are you guys still recording just about live? You, you refer to your first EP together as 
pretty much forcing your wife to sing while playing when she didn't feel comfortable. She just started the drums. So is that still your modus that you're like pretty much trying to do the live thing on tape? Pretty much. Yeah. Except, you know, now I'm more comfortable with it and I I don't have to wear a helmet with the microphone (laughs) in front of me because I kept, I kept hitting everything, Mm. you know, every, every position that we put the microphone in, in that session, I kept hitting it. So, so the devised this helmet, you know, microphone situation where it was over my face. I wish we had pictures because it was so ridiculous, but it worked. We do start out, you know, everything live in the studio and then there whatever overdub ideas happen after that. Yes. At least what jumps out on this is, you know, you got extra Sue vocals that come in somewhere in the middle to be over the top. Do you have any words about the song? This is the opening track. It's pretty rocking. Do you have any preparatory words about what this is about or anything before folks hear it? <laughs> It's, um, you know, it was very much kind of a pandemic song. All the social unrest that was going on. I mean, we're not necessarily a super political band or anything, but you couldn't help but be affected by all that. And, you know, to my mind, this song's about being a really crappy ally. You're an ally, but you're not necessarily, there's only so much you can do as an old white guy. <laughs> so that's where it kind of comes from. <laughs>
So very cool initial riff, just to be clear. So this is all the, the bass six. Okay, this is a guitar you said where it's just tuned down an octave, you know, so that you can hold down a bass. So there's no solo in this song, right? I mean, I would think that would be difficult if it's the two of you to solo at all because you can't hold down the bass. Some songs it'll have a solo-ish kind of thing, mm-hmm. but we there's a general rule. We don't have many of them. We'll have like an instrumental section, but I don't think that song even has one. Yeah. So you got to sell the riff itself that it has that. Yeah. I, keep, I keep thinking, <laughs> don't fear the Reaper. I know that's just because it's one of the more popular instances <laughs> of having something with a open uh, arpeggiated articulation in it. It's not terribly far removed. <laughs> Any issues with that? It is something that you're playing, at least in the bass range, some of it, and yet you want to put distortion on it. When I play bass, I don't, you know, unless it's supposed to be a fuzz, but unless it's a gimmick, like it's very hard to actually have bass, but then distort it. Any, how are you picking your sounds for this? There are bass fuzz pedals out there that will mix the clean bass sound with the fuzz. Mm. And that's kind of the secret because you still get the low end and clarity of the notes, but you get plenty of fuzz too. I mean, I use a couple of bass big muffs, the electromonics things. It's possible and you just have to play around with it. You also play through a bass amp and a guitar amp. Well, I mean, yeah. Mm. So a lot of situations I play through both bass amp and a guitar amp. And in recording, we do that. Plus we'll run a clean direct signal that can be mixed in to, if you need clarification, you know, we need more clarity here and there. And so, you know, there's just a lot of ways to do it. It's really been interesting playing a bass six as a main instrument. I'd only ever used them like in the studio before, which is really what they were sort of intended for. And they're, but it's funny now, like I see all these young indie bands and the bass players playing bass sixes. So I think it's kind of cool that they're catching on. I don't know. It's just been a real different kind of approach to things. So I always played regular mm-hmm. guitar or regular bass. So it's a, it's a challenge, but it's a lot of fun. So you're just relying on the amp EQ or do you like put it through some kind of splitter so it's actually only the low signal that's going to the bass amp in the first place? You know, and a lot of, I mean, my philosophy of playing anything, a lot of it is how it's in your hands more than anything, but both of the amps are set relatively clean. I mean, I'm not a fan of super clean, but I'm not a fan, you know, I like some clarity and all, but a lot of it's got to do with how I use my right hand. I mean, there's a lot of times I'll play I'll ride the bass notes with the pick, but then pick out a melody with my other fingers, you know, and then, but other times I just play like a regular guitar. It's an interesting way that he's playing because he ends up, it sounds like he's playing bass and guitar at the same time. That's the way it comes across when he's riding on that bass string, but then picking with his finger on the rest of the, the rest of his fingers on the um, strings below. And so it really does come across as you hear the bass and you hear guitar, and he's playing them at the same time. And that's totally just straight, you know, listening to Hill Country Blues and how those guys play, you know, except they don't even use a pick. It's just all fingers. But they're like somebody like Arl Burnside rarely had, almost never had a bass player. He was always just kind of riding that low string and picking out the melody. I certainly don't put myself in that category, but I certainly... You were inspired. I was inspired and stole some of the technique. (laughs) So you got the pick between your thumb and your first finger to play the low ones. But then you're also, do you have finger picks or just long fingernails on your right hand? Or you're actually using those? Just the meat of the finger. Okay, so, all right. Just the meat of the fingertip, yeah. And did you... uh, You get a lot of blisters playing like that. (laughs) And then, Sue, when you picked up bass, 
did he inflict pick on you as a guitarist teaching you to play or did you just <laughs> play the uh, right way i as bass player say which is no with- <laughs> no 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 i i played with a pick because it was the easiest way that i could start playing sooner than mm-hmm. than with my fingers i that was that was doing too much math for me i was like this is easy one note at a time i'm playing with kick drum i can do that six months later i was playing uh this is the duo you you switch from bass <laughs> to drums for this band so at the beginning of the song, you get this nice open ringing riff, but then it ends with the da-da-da-da-da, which is kind of the, I don't know, the tag riff is what I, you know, the thing that you get into every chorus with. And the first time that happens, you come in with this drum riff as if we're going to take off and actually start. Oh, but actually, no, let's just, let's just <laughs> sit back and let the guitar go by itself again. I assume that was intentional. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. that was actually Matt Patton's idea. Yeah, we we yeah. played it straight in and, and Matt was like, oh, do a false start. So yeah. we did it, we did yeah. it again with false start. And then when we got to the end, it was like, okay, now I think Bronson was like, now put a false end on it. So, <laughs> so that's a false start and a false end. So at this point with the lyrics, are you writing everything together? Are you is somebody drafting it and showing it to the other person? How did this one work in particular? We mostly, we've done it every way you possibly can, but mostly these days, one of us comes in with a pretty full lyrical idea, but the other always has room for input because we don't make demos or anything like that. We just bash them out till they feel right. It used to be we would just play them and go like, there it is. But now we, we tend to live with songs a little bit longer and work a little harder on them and kind of, as Susan says, let them tell us what they want as opposed to. Us trying to strangle them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So just to to clarify the earlier question, were you singing while recording the instruments on this or was this like a normal recording where you just, you know, the two of you are playing together and then you don't have to worry about Sue's vocal bleeding into the drum mics because you you just do that later. We record vocals with the basic track. Yeah. And there are a couple couple of vocals on this record that are the, the live one. You know, because it was always like, just listen to it and decide, if it's, you know, like and for me, it's usually pretty isolated. So you, you can keep it pretty easy. But in Susan's case, there are times when having her mic there actually adds something to the drums. And so we'll use the live vocal case by case. More often than not, we overdub the vocals. But there are times that like, oh, well, you got that. That's good. Let's go. Yeah. Move, let's move forward. You know? A lot of times if the energy is there, we'll keep the vocal. It sounds, even though the two of you are singing together through parts of this, Sue's voice is doing something else, is being the choir. Like you get to, your notes get to last a little longer than Tim's, you know, (laughs) and I'm not even talking about the overdub. I'm even talking your regular part. Yeah. So it seems like having, I know I've had plenty of recordings where there's a guide part, but I'll just sing with the guide part. And if you have a little double tracking sound, so what? That sounds cool, especially if you're supposed to sound like the choir. Yes. Well, Susan's a better singer than I am, so she can hold notes better than I can. As part of it. But, but also on that particular song, the idea was, you know, Susan's vocal was doubled so that the vocals were pretty drastically different sounding. Yeah. That was, that was intentional. This overdub that I keep referring to, the fighter, was that just a in the studio thing? Or was that like, do you feel the need to do some version of that live, for instance? 
No, that's strictly studio. Matt Patton again. He's he's got great ideas and stuff like that. You know, he guy can turn a song into an anthem yeah. like that. <laughs> and he and Schaefer Yana, who was the assistant engineer, and Bronson, who too, who was the engineer. All three of them have like really good voices for doing that kind of stuff. So a lot of that kind of stuff on the record is actually them. Or, you know, it'd be Schaefer and Susan singing something, that kind of thing. It was just different combinations of different people. I hardly ever get asked to do backing vocals. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will have a prominent instance of that coming up. Just a little more on this one. So just looking at the lyrics more, I get, you know, that you're both referring to, goddamn, uh, this is, you know, it's the pandemic, we're all very restless and you want to be on the road or whatever. But also a sort of political impotence that it's even even if you're an act on a stage, even if you're successfully getting out. Well, you know, the the most you can do about the political situation is sing about it. Say something like how, you know, that's not going to that's not going to do anything. Any further thoughts about like I didn't notice. I can't think of one political word that went into your book here. (laughs) I mean, we're both very politically minded people, but we kind of. Don't really. Susan probably uses it in songs more than I do. That's why I didn't really think about it. I just, I mean, I wrote most of the lyrics, but it's literally I was frustrated because I hadn't had any ideas in a while. And I wrote the line, it's just words on a page, on a piece of paper. And the rest of it kind of wrote itself. And then later I looked back and went, whoa, that's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) In my conscious mind, I would have never come up with a line as good as I want to burn it down, but I can't find a lighter, you know, <laughs> or I would have taught myself out of it, but just kind of going into the unconscious mind and let whatever the subconscious do the work. And then the, cause I'm a loser, not a fighter, which is such, I want to say iconic, but that's because it's, it's a variation on. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's yeah, the variation on the whole, you know, Bo Diddley thing. I'm a lover, not a fighter, right. and, which is such a boast. And I'm a loser, not a fighter is sort of the opposite of a boast. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of an interesting relation that I think anybody who's accomplished but feels like maybe they could have done more, I, I don't know, throughout the whole book of, I'm just trying to do what I'm trying to do. I know I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm glorified out there. I know I have my own page in certain rock directories, but, you know, you call yourself a never was, <laughs> you know, so it, it, it seems like an ongoing theme of like, people are saying historical things about you and then like, well, what do you do with that? I don't know. Is this loser, <laughs> not a fighter thing? Like... Am I reading too? I'm mean, reading this yeah. into that too much. I mean, it's 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 been a theme. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I mean, Tim Tim is the king of self deprecation. Yeah, it's just a weird thing that, like, you know, when people talk about stuff that you've done in the past, because my thing, and I and I think I've talked probably talked about this in the book a good bit, is I I'll, I'm always way more interested in what's going to happen next than what's already happened. And I'm certainly proud of the work I've done over the years, and, and I'm glad people like it. But, you know, I'm also that guy that wants them to hear this new record. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, that's me. Here, listen to this. Yeah, it's like, but I'm not done yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, enough about the new record. Let's move back a few years to uh, the, Tim- <laughs> the, the Tim Lee 3, but not all the way back. Where I'm not going to make you talk about Windbreakers yet. We'll save that till the end. Magnolia Plates is the f- song that I picked out. It also has a very... Don't fear the Reaper esque, you know, just a really good guitar riff is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. that, you know, resonant for by the Tim Lee three. So Sue is in this, but as a bass player, whoa. But this is a, a few records in with that band. They're all quite good, but this 
when I heard this one in particular, it seemed like, wow, okay, this has reached another level of professionalism or something in terms of this group Aww, sounding tight. Thank you. With Chris Brata on drums, 2015, you want to say anything about where you guys were at at this point, 2015 or so, toward the end of the you know, last couple records of the Tim Lee Three's career here? I wrote most of that song and I tend to be, I'll sit on something for quite a while and it drives Tim crazy. But, you know, generally when a song starts coming to me, I hear words and melody at the same time. So, but I, I just tend to sort of, you know, scribble something down and come back to it later and then come back to it several times over, over a few months, you know, likely, you know, and then I got to translate all that to Tim and then, you know, and he'll take the words and do his part to him or whatever. I said, that song is a love letter to Mississippi. Uh, and we were living in Knoxville at the time, had been away from Mississippi for 15 years yeah. at that point. And, you know, when we both grew up in Mississippi, we've lived in various parts all over the state. But one of our favorite weekend things to do was just to take road trips and just drive for hours. And we would just drive wherever, drive, you know, drive through the Delta. And so that song is, you know, kind of a mixture of numerous road trips. You're not on the road enough touring all the time. You have to. You just... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it, it basically, you know, goes back to before I even started playing. And Tim was, you know, had sort of put music aside a little bit in the 90s when we lived in Oxford. And I mean, we took a lot of road trips over to the Delta and stuff like yeah. that just for fun. That's basically what that song is about. Just a love letter to Mississippi.
Before we talk about that song, let's do the ad break. I want to need to talk to you about Factor Meals. It's America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, helping you fuel up fast for breakfast, lunch, and dinner with chef-prepared, dietitian-approved, ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. I don't mind cooking sometimes, but I don't want the times where I don't have time to cook to just be heating up a frozen pizza or ordering from a restaurant. I'm an adult. I want consistent nutritional quality and I want things to actually taste good, not super processed. With Factor Meals, you're going to get things like cranberry pecan chicken, apple Dijon pork chops. These are hearty, comforting meals featuring seasonal veggies, premium ingredients like broccolini, leeks, truffle butter, and asparagus. There are at least 35 options every week. Plenty if you want to keep vegetarian or restrict yourself to calorie smart meals with 550 or less calories per serving or protein plus meals with 30 grams of protein or more per serving. There's also lunch to go options, more than 45 add-ons to suit various tastes and preferences like breakfast items, snacks, beverage options. I really like the smoothies. In addition to having used the service myself, I set up my elderly father with a factor meals plan. He has very exacting standards for nutrition and he thinks it's just great. So skip grocery store trips these are delivered right to your door sustainably, given that Factor offsets 100% delivery emissions and sources 100% renewable electricity for their production sites and offices. So this is a sustainable, healthy, ethical choice, which gets you a good meal ready in just two minutes. No prep, no mess. Head to factormeals.com slash NEM50 and use code NEM50 to get 50% off. That's code NEM50 at factormeals.com slash NEM50 to get 50% off. So nice. Mid-tempo country rock with that very resonant. <laughs> You've got electric piano, very light, a couple of acoustic guitars. Any thoughts about the production on this one? You're not saying, oh, it's a Tim Lee 3. We can only have one guitar and one bass. You know, it's not a power trio. It's a nicely layered, just like all the Windbreaker stuff and a lot of your subsequent yeah, stuff. Yeah, we did most of the Tim Lee 3 stuff in Tucson, Arizona at Wave Lab with Craig Schumacher and Chris Schultz and... That song was very much one where Craig kind of went to town and he played the the electric piano and I think he even sang the backing vocal on it and um, yeah and he spent no telling how much time mixing it because that's really his thing is mixing and so that had a lot of his influence but you know we really liked it's so interesting to be from the deep south like the swampiest place on earth and go to the desert to record. But there's a thing, you know, the kind of desert approach to stuff that we really like. And I think it serves that song in, in particular mm-hmm. quite well. Tucson was such a great place to go and record. It was so comfortable for us. The acoustic guitar thing, like that goes back to the Windbreakers. We always would do like stereo acoustic guitars on stuff just for the texture. And for a song like that, it, it just it makes for a nice texture on a record. Sure, it's like adding reverb. It's, you know, have some something in the high range there. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's also like a percussion. This is not using the bass six, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it just, it sounds like a very low. No, no. Yeah, no, it was a regular bass, yeah. So I thought I caught you in a very prominent background vocal. In fact, let me just play a second of the bridge. So all these oohs, that's not you, Tim. That's Craig. That's Craig. <laughs> That's Craig Schumacher. Yeah. He has a great voice. He's, yeah. He does amazing background vocals. 
We have a tendency to work with people who are good singers. <laughs> yeah, the chorus of this is really, I mean, it has a very Neil Young, knock it on heaven's door feel, something, especially with that backing vocal. You got the whole melody worked out. Are you to the point where you're coming up with chords? Or if you're writing, are you writing on with a bass in your hand or is purely piece of paper, Sue? I wouldn't know a chord if it came up and bit me on the behind. I know the notes, but I couldn't make a chord you know, if my life depended on it. So generally what I end up doing is having to hum it for Tim. Which is always entertaining because you got <laughs> to figure out if you're playing the major or the relative minor or whatever. <laughs> I'll sit down and hum it for him and he'll come up with the melody or translate the melody. I mean, this might have interesting effects that, so I'm just going to play. This is eight seconds in where the bass comes in the first time. So it's not boom, bum, 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 bum. It's not major. It's mum, bum, 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 as if, but... It's playing in a major, it's a major chord, right? But so she's playing a minor third over the major chord. It sounds cool. That's just, but it's, <laughs> no, it does. It's, uh, I don't know. It's, we tend to not analyze things too hard. If it sounds cool, we go with it. And I think that's just. just yeah, because you're speaking French to me at this point. So. <laughs> but, uh, but that's just what felt natural to you and, mm-hmm. and it sounded natural. So, yeah. You know, yeah. But I, yeah, I've had people over the years. I love the way you saying that minor thing over the major thing. I'm going, okay. (laughs) Well, I would think that's also an advantage of whether it's a duo or a trio or something that you don't have to worry about exactly what the chord, right? If you're not communicating it to a second guitarist, a keyboardist that like, then, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they call you on stuff. (laughs) Like, what is that thing that you're doing? Just tell me what to do, you know? Just play a single note thing so we don't have to resolve this ambiguity. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know, Love Letter to Mississippi, were there specific reference? Like, is the Magnolia Plates, is that like a specific geographical feature? I was looking that up on the internet and I found only actual plates. Like, like. <laughs> no, um, those are uh, car tags. Oh, oh, okay. License <laughs> a license plates. Yeah, that's a reference to license plates. The last verse, I think it is, where, is it the last verse of the cotton? The, this stuff glows, baby, even at night? Yeah, the stuff glowing at night is driving through cotton. Yeah, that's a driving, I mean, driving through the Delta on a, you know, a two-lane highway with almost ready to be picked cotton on either side of the road for miles, and you've got a full moon. I mean, that's a very specific reference to a trip that we made and ended up at a Juke joint behind a cotton processing, a cotton gin, yeah, yeah. yeah, in the middle of nowhere. Let me uh, pick on another uh, musical thing here. So, getting into the solo here. So just the fact that the solo starts playing while Sue's still singing the last line and then continues and it's very backed off reverb. You know, this is, I don't know, maybe adds to this, what a scenic vista this is, that this is a guitarist is high on a hill or something. I don't know. Were you even thinking about that or is that just a mixing decision that you were not even necessarily in on? Yeah, that's a real hallmark of Craig Schumacher's mixing style is 
made everything in delay and reverb. We play that live, that guitar comes in more prominently, you know, but it's doing that little sort of arpeggiated riff that I figured out one day was like from a pretender song and I've used it like a thousand times. <laughs> Back on the chain gang, I heard it one day and I went, oh, that's where I stole that riff that I use all the time. <laughs> well, and then interesting that I thought I stole all my riffs from ZZ Top Records. <laughs> after, after a little bit of soloing, then it, at about 2.44, it drops. Uh, you got a, a dropout here down to bass. With the organ riff, I mean, I guess you can tell that this is an organ added by somebody in the studio who does not have, is not a band member that feels the need to solo or whatever, like that he's fine yeah. with a two note riff and then he's done pretty much. Yeah. yeah any thought about that how that, again, that dynamic, yeah. that yeah. whole decision to like, don't solo through the whole thing. Let's have it dive down to a breakdown to get to this last verse. But we're just big fans of that kind of dynamic thing, you know, where it's loud in some places and quiet in others, and then where it breaks down. And, and again, in a live situation, it is always fun to let the guitar drop out sometimes with a three-piece band and let the rhythm section just do their thing. And personally, I love that kind of thing, you know, dropping out and then coming back in. Well, yeah, we didn't even talk about in the first song, I Can't Find a Lighter, boom. Because I'm a fight, you know, that yeah. like, that it happens every time. Yeah. It's not just like once before the guitar solo. It's like, no, that's just, that's part of the song. That's especially with only two yeah. of you. Yeah. It seems like you got to add punctuation and dynamics or else like, you know, what's actually going on. You don't have the option of having the keyboardist sit out and then add a thing. Or, you know, that's, those are studio tricks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Has that changed the way you have thought about making the core song more textured, more ups and downs and stops and stuff so that it can still come across if it's just two of you or even you playing by yourself. I saw you do an acoustic thing on the internet. Maybe that's a very rare solo thing. Uh, It is very rare. Okay. Whereas in the olden days, it might've been more, no, no, no. The guitar keeps going and it's, you'll worry about it in the, in the arrangement, you know, how to make it textured and make every verse different from the last. Yeah, very much so. But yeah, we definitely try to work as much dynamic into things as possible. And, you know, especially we do so much singing together that when it's one person singing and then all of a sudden there's another voice with it, that changes the dynamic, mm-hmm. which we re- we have to, you know, with it's just two of us playing instruments, you kind of have to rely on that a lot. Yeah. But, you know, also the stops and starts and the that kind of thing. You know, we live, we can get pretty quiet in between some really loud. Yeah. <laughs> and that's something we've worked on and, you know, we're very conscious of. You know, I remember like years ago reading about the Pixies or somebody like they have the loud and quiet thing. And we're like, people have been doing that for years. You know, <laughs> <laughs> have you ever listened to rock and roll? It kind of has that dynamic. <laughs> Makes me think I saw a, a Pixies interview where the bass player was saying too many bass players. They try to help the drummer. The drummer doesn't need help. The drummer can do a riff into the next section the just fine. 
the bass can just do, yeah. do, do, and then just switch to the new section. Does it have to go, boom, boom, yeah. boom, yeah. boom, you know, was that, <laughs> did you have a minimalist philosophy of, uh, as a bass player or was that just by necessity because you were fairly new to it? <laughs> a little of both. I think when I started playing, I really naturally fell in with the kick drum. Mm-hmm. And sort of pretty much played along with the kick drum with, you know, a few little extra grace notes here and there. But mostly I felt like my job was to sit between the bass drum and the guitar. That, and that was where I was most comfortable with. I Not knowing chords and majors and minors and stuff like that, you know, it was a lot easier for me to find a groove playing very simply. Yeah, you also write melodies, though, which is, you know, a very much a headspace, which that sort of leads naturally as for a bass player to I'm going to do McCartney stuff. In other words, I, I don't even hold down the rhythm anymore because you have a melody in your head <laughs> that may be a counter melody to what's going on. But I didn't hear a lot of Mm-mm. if I hear a melody in my head, that's his job or, or, or just for the vocal. Yeah, or for the vocal. Sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. But I'm holding down the rhythm, melodically holding down the rhythm. but. Or I was, yeah. Has that changed for you over time in switching to drums? Because with drums, you can be more, the things that would come into your head are not just, I'm going to do a drum fill, do, 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 do. No, that's, that's like what a drum machine, that's one of the presets. No, it's yeah, like the things that, I don't know, do you write drum parts with your, with your mind or with your hands? Does that make sense? I, I do not, actually. I don't have a whole lot of fancy fills and and licks and stuff in my repertoire but what i play is specifically for bart i don't probably couldn't play in any other band besides bart because when we start working on a song i sort of reach around for the things that i know that i play with bart and you know sort of try to adjust them to work into whatever song we're working up at the time but you're also good at if you hear something, you can figure out how to play it. Yeah. I mean, and, that's, and you came up with some really good fills on the Loud album. I mean, yeah. Some of them are just, yeah. they're pretty melodic. Yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, the, the one that's in the intro, the one that's in the intro that launches and the way the song ends, that you play that sort of thing together. But as, yeah. as you guys are wrapping up, it does not sound like, you know, the equivalent of what if, if you were being very minimalist on bass. You're not doing that on drums. I mean, you're, you're holding it down, but like there's only two of you. So there's a lot of room. Yeah. I feel like I'm, I'm minimalist compared to other drummers and drummers that I've played with. Okay. But like when I first decided to learn how to play drums, Chris Brada, who was our drummer in the Tim Lee three at the time, he taught drums to kids. So I asked him if he would teach me how to play drums and he did. He gave me, you know, taught me how to read charts think I could do that now if my life depended on it. But that's how he started me reading charts. Because, you know, when you're reading a chart and you're going, okay, this, and then this, and then this, and then this. And it takes a while for you to sort of figure out how it all goes together, you know, to make an actual rhythm. And once I got that, I was like, ah, that's what this is supposed to sound like. Okay, I recognize this. And after a while, I I had this thing where I called it iPhone roulette or iTunes roulette, where I would start my phone and I would have to play the song that came up. Mm. Shuffle. Shuffle. I just, I started on shuffle and I'll have to play the song that come up and I would only allow myself three skips because obviously there's going to be things that are going to come up that I can't play and I'm not even going to try. And so I would do that. 
And then that evolved to, I would just play along with uh, Credence Clearwater Revival songs because that was really good, straightforward groove drumming that I could, that I felt like I could do. And then, you know, Tim would hear me upstairs. He would hear me practicing. He would come down and he's like, you know, let's play together. (laughs) And that's how Bart got started. But Susan also very much underestimates her abilities as a drummer. <laughs> she hasn't played with nearly enough bad drummers to understand. <laughs> She's basically only played with good drummers. <laughs> so there's no moment where you turned to Chris Bratta and said, I am the master now. You're fired. You're, you know, it's now. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, well, no. I understand that you're actually running those in tandem that both bands existed yeah. over, in an overlapping way. Yeah, we is, kept them both going for a while. We yeah. did, yeah. It just yeah. got to be too much trying to keep up with two gigs. If you were booking too, you know, too many Tim Lee three gigs, you felt like Bark was being ignored. If you're booking too many Bark gigs, you felt like the other. It just was like time to settle on one of them. Well, speaking of dumb drum riffs, let's go to Like Sand from Crawdad 1992. Just because this is one of your only songs that actually has boom, 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 like the country boom, <laughs> boom, 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 that, you know, you're using a genre thing. Oh, the one five bass part. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think this is only one of two, uh, two songs on the album that even has fiddle on it like this is not a, even for this album this is not a normal s- yeah. s- sound but this was the one that somewhere online that i was looking at i in fact had even picked a different one off this album but somebody said oh the standout track like sand all right let me give that another chance and it maybe is it seems like one of the more profound things and definitely an experiment on your part stylistically do you want to say a little of where you're at at this point 1991 recording this after you had just stopped touring and maybe, according to your book, we're a little pessimistic about things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I was very pessimistic about things and not really sure what was going on or what I was going to do or, you know, was having to make a lot of hard decisions. And I think that song was kind of trying to talk myself into being okay about it. Because, <laughs> you know, pretty positive compared to some of the other songs on that record. <laughs> And by the way, it, it does feature bass six. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the, the solo is a trade-off between the bass oh, six that's and what the that, Okay, so you're playing that, that spaghetti western I, it was guitar. A bass six. I, yeah. yeah, I didn't have one, so I borrowed one from Jeff Calder of the Swimming Pool Cues, who had one of every vintage instrument known to man, I think. So, yeah, but it, and stylistically, it was, you know, I thought for a minute there, maybe I, would, I could be a singer-songwriter, but, you know, the... The vintage suit didn't fit well, and the fedora fell off. And so, you know, you're not fedorable. I'm not fedorable. I'm, it doesn't matter what you do. I'm just you know a rock and roll guy. But that I was definitely trying to play with more folk, country type influence, and seeing how it would fly. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. My favorite thing about the fiddle on that though was that Peter Luchier, the guy that played fiddle on it. I just knew him from playing in a local band there in Atlanta, which is where we lived at the time. And like the next day, Rob Gal, who produced the record, saw him somewhere and he goes like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have done all those mushrooms before I came to the session. (laughs) (laughs) It it took a lot of takes. (laughs) Let's hear it. The end result is really good. (laughs) That fiddle soft and low Late into the night Beneath that soft warm candle's glow 
Just be careful what you wish for You might just get what you ask All misgivings and monkey's paws Should be left to the past Spend your days looking forward Look toward the good and forget the bad All the time spent reminiscing Slip through your fingers like sand Yeah, so I imagine that, you know, if you were doing this solo, it would just be a very different feel. Was this the producer that decided we should make this a full-on country song, or did you actually have that in mind as you wrote this little fast acoustic thing? It started with the fast acoustic guitar thing, and the drummer was Billy Burton from the Swing Pool Cues, and the bass player was a guy named Tim Childress, who I'd been playing with in a band called The Paralyzer Some, and... They really, I think they just kind of, when we started playing it in the studio, it was one of the first songs we did for the record. I think that's just kind of what they fell into, and we just took it and ran with it. The fiddle was later. No, they, the fiddle, got, yeah, got added later. But I did, you know, I think I already had that in mind because, you know, I already knew that I wanted the bass six to do that thing and then be echoed by, you know, have an echo of something else. And because there was another song that we tried a pedal steel player on, and and it just never worked. And then like the next day, he was like, oh, the rods on my pedal steel were bent. <laughs> so it would just never go in tune. So it's like we spent a whole day with him. And it was like, gosh, this guy can't play in tune. Because I heard him play in tune thousands of times. And all of a sudden, it was like, oh, the, rod was, the rods were bent on the pedals. <laughs> you know, so we, tried, we were experimenting a lot. It was, you know, I was working with Rob Gow, who was a guitar player in the Coolies. And 
and we did it on you know eight track reel to reel in his you know like guest bedroom. It was well, let's take that back. I started there, but we he ended up moving into a space, so we oh, yeah. a studio space. But there would be songs that we would start because we would do it like every Wednesday afternoon or something for <laughs> several weeks, and. There were a couple that we'd record the basic track and then I'd leave and come back the next week and Rob had finished it. But this song was definitely one of the ones we really experimented with and played around with till we found something that we liked. So you're saying with the fiddle player, there was lots of punch-ins that all those punctuating things were not one take or you just had him do a lot of takes and combine the best bands? I think he did a lot of takes and ended up, yeah, I think he did a lot of takes because I mean, Again, on eight track, it's not like you can do 20 takes and piece it together. You know, you can punch in, but, you know, he, so I think he basically got one that was really, you know, pretty good and maybe punched in a couple of things. And was there any sense of, you wrote lyrics, play that fiddle soft and low. There's fiddle, very little actual soft and low fiddle playing in the song. It's mostly. <laughs> no, <laughs> not till the last verse, but yeah, now there was, like I say, it was all just kind of like letting people go for it and see what they came up with. And that's one of my favorite things in the studio. If you're going to have other people play is don't dictate too much. Just tell them what, just tell them what you're going for and let them and see what they come up with, because they're probably always going to come up with something more interesting than you have in mind. Just quietly remove it in the mix later. You don't have to <laughs> confront them about it's it. really quiet. Uh, but I am that guy that also is like, you know, people go, well, we can put it down. And they're like, well, if you're going to put it down low in the mix, then just do something else or take it. You know, it's like, sure. If it's not worth showcasing, then just do away with it or something. Cause sure. It seems like there's no reverb on the vocal whatsoever. Is that right? Or, you know, it's so little, at least by comparison. I know this was a long time ago. But. It would, yeah. It's just, yeah, it was a long time ago, but it's uh, <laughs> with Rob, his style was not necessarily to go straight for a lot of effects on the vocals. And this is also like the very beginning of the 90s when we'd all kind of gone through the whole gated snare reverb thing and all, and which was totally fine. I mean, but, you know, people complain about 80s production values all the time. But what they don't know is if you were there, it was fun. You know, <laughs> you had all these new toys that made funny noises. And who doesn't like that? So I have no ill will towards any, you know, weird production I might have done. And well, not much of it anyway, but, <laughs> but it's something really nice. I think we were kind of looking at making more stark, you know, realistic sounding recordings or something that just may be screwed up memories. <laughs> but instead you consciously sought out, I cannot play this guitar riff merely by playing on the low E string, I need to find the bass six. But what made you even think that I need this new toy for this sound? Was there another record that used that on it that you were like, oh yeah, I got to be able to play a guitar line lower than human beings are normally able to do so? No, I just was familiar with bass sixes. Like Mitch Easter always had one at his studio and I'd just seen him in the studio and used them from time to time to double parts or whatever. I probably knew more about bass sixes than I did about baritone guitars because in that era, baritone guitars weren't nearly as prevalent as they became later, you know, in indie rock world. But yeah, I just knew that I liked that sound and, and I knew I could borrow, I knew somebody I could borrow one from. So Let me play the place where everything drops out.
you know, we didn't talk about the female backing vocal, the little choir there, oohs and stuff. I mean, this seems like this was, you said this is a, in the book, this is a sound that you liked, you know, that you were ready for something like the Bark experience by having these dual vocal things in a lot of your, some, at least occasionally in your earlier stuff like this. Well, yeah, and it's just something I've always liked, you know, bands like X and the Divine Horseman and things like Richard and Linda Thompson. I always loved that kind of thing. And I mean, it was super exciting for me when Susan started singing, but anytime I was in the studio, if I could drag great, you know, female voices in, I would. On that record, it was Esther Hill from the band Lava Love and Ann Boston from The Swimming Pool Cues. And I think they both sing on that song, if I'm not mistaken. I love everything about that sound. So the day Susan started singing was just like the greatest moment of my adult life. <laughs> Like all of a sudden, I have this, I have this sound in house. <laughs> yeah, and of course, you're self-deprecating about your lead vocal ability, even though you do it all the time. I feel the same. You know, just anybody with kind of a low voice. You know, if you're not the, the yeah. soaring tenor, then like, ooh, a female voice to to break the monotony of having to hear me grunt for ten songs in a row. <laughs> That's just wonderful. I mean, I know Susan, you were writing lyrics that you started writing at some point. Where there are a number of songs where. Tim was writing for you. Like he wrote the whole lyric, but it was, oh, now I have this new instrument at my disposal. Let me write something from the female point of view or something. Like, was there any of that nonsense or does that seem disingenuous somehow? It's a little contrived probably, but we... I don't think you've ever written anything from a female perspective, but there are times when he's written something and he comes to me and says, this would sound better if you sang it. Okay. Yeah, so it's it's been more about how the song would sound rather than, you know, yeah. the content or anything. Yeah, that's probably very true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I just didn't know if, if there's a different kind of song, you know, the few times where I've written for something for somebody else to sing, then it has to be a little less personal or something. I mean, it's one thing if you just write something and you're like, after the fact, maybe somebody else should sing this. But I don't know, is it a different frame of mind? Like this song in particular, you're being a little more overtly poetic, right? Then many of your things play that fiddle soft and low beneath the warm candles glow. That seems like the kind of thing that could be handed off to another singer because it's not maybe like the first song, you know, this expression of personal frustration or whatever. That seems a little weirder for somebody else to be singing. Songwriting is such a weird thing because, you know, I've, I've done it for 40 some odd years now. And it's something I had to, pr it's like anything, like learning how to play guitar. I had to practice a lot. Mm -hmm. I, Nothing comes naturally to me, but I, I can master things if I work at them hard enough. So songwriting was a real challenge, but I've been doing it for so long now that for the most part, it comes pretty naturally. It's more like I write these things and then I'm kind of look back and see what I did more than I go into them with a preconceived notion of what I'm trying to do. But that song, I had definitely reached a point where I, you know, I would have been writing songs long enough and it We'd been listening to a lot of what I considered great songwriters and was at least making an attempt to be, you know, a little more poetic sometimes. And yeah, when I was transcribing those lyrics to send to you, I was like, wow, I was putting a little work into that, wasn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Slips through your fingers like sand. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a 30-year-old that knows everything in it. <laughs> Well, let's get a slightly younger persons. So I want to pick something from the Windbreakers that wasn't from Terminal because I there's a bunch of videos for some reason, multiple shows from 1986 
or so from around this time. So the run tour. So I picked the title track, even though I know this is a co-write, right? So I wasn't even sure how much of this, how, how attached to this you felt, but it definitely was the sound of, that you were pushing for through many songs through this period. You know, this is going to actually rock. It's not going to be jangle. It's going to be, yeah. Any, any thoughts about where you were at this point and this song with Sherry? Sherry Catherine. Yeah. You know, I was within the windbreakers. It was myself and Bobby Sutliff and we were like best buds and we started out kind of like doing this power pop thing. And that came so naturally to Bobby and I worked really hard at it and I got where I could do some of it, but then it's just not my nature to do the same thing over and over. And it's also not my nature to really go along with the program. So by the time we got to run, I definitely was trying to step it up a little bit. Cause I was always more of a punk rock guy than Bobby. Um, Bobby loved that stuff, but it didn't influence him the way it did me musically, I guess. So that song is a very good example of that. I mean, that was probably way faster than we usually played. <laughs> and uh, I remember Mitch Easter played drums on that one, and he was completely... I th- we probably didn't play it more than a couple of times because it just wore him out. Cause he didn't play drums all the time. He's a guitar player. <laughs> He's a great drummer. But as far as the song itself, yeah, Sherry and I had been in bands together, and we still play together some you know, and still great friends, but she just writes notebooks upon notebooks of lyrics and prose and poems and whatever. And she usually would just give me these, you know, yellow legal pads just full of lyrics and words. And when you're young and trying to write a lot of songs, that's a godsend to not have to like come up with words all the time. And so she was a great partner in that I used a lot of And I'd say this song is probably 90% her lyrics, but there was a lot of what we were doing at the time because she was so prolific lyrically and I was sitting around trying to write songs all the time.
All right, so let's talk about this wall of sound that you got first, where you know it's a it's a constant acoustic, and then this one of these. It's probably just the pedal that you choose to use. But I love these. Bob Mould is one of my favorite artists, and he has all these riffs that well, you're basically on one chord, and if you watch him, he's just going blah blah. You know, he's just playing the chord, but it it sounds very articulate. It sounds like you're doing one of those "Don't yeah. Fear the Reaper" riffs from these other things, but it's got more <laughs> distortion on it, so that it's you know it's sparkly, but yet it is driving as if you're just playing eighth notes or whatever any sense of how you guys layered this that the fact that you can do that and still have a keyboard that you can hear throughout you know uh, that's very nicely balanced you know for me a lot of it is why i really prefer to use fender guitars i mean i love playing les paul juniors and things like that but when it comes to recording and writing songs a telecaster's or a Stratocaster suits me better than most things. And in that case, I'm pretty sure that the main guitar on that would have been either a Tele or a Strat through a Marshall because that studio had a Marshall half stack and we used it a lot. So you, you got just enough bright out of the guitar pickups to match the distortion kind of so that you do, do you get that clarity as well as the kind of dirt that goes with it. You know, to me, that's always the goal is to get clarity with some grit. You know, like when I play regular guitar, I call my clean sound Keith Richards clean because it's never completely clean. But it's a good place to start that if you play harder, it's more distorted. If you play quieter, it's cleaner. And, you know, really making the amp do the work or the pickups or whatever more than, you know, a pedal. Back then, really didn't use pedals except for solos. Because mm-hmm. I always love having a stun pedal so that your guitar goes haywire when it's time to solo. <laughs> you got to wrestle it. That's mostly, and then we always did like to have that driving acoustic guitar. Maybe didn't even have accents. It was just like a percussion instrument going full uh, But speed. that would be overdubbed, I assume. Were you trying to get, I mean, it sounds like from your, where you said about Mitch only wanting to play it a few times, that like you're trying to get at least three of you playing onto the recording at the same time to like get that energy that you're not going to get if it's just you doing a guy part and then Mitch trying to drum against that. Now, that was me and me playing guitar and Bobby Self playing bass and Mitch playing drums for the basic track. And then everything else was overdubbed. And later when Breakers Records, we kind of got into the habit of, if it was, say, if it was Bobby's song, he would play electric guitar and we'd have a bass player and a drummer and I would be like in a booth playing acoustic guitar on the basic track mm, okay. so that we had that vibe that we always added. We would just have it there on the basic track and we might add a second guitar that was slightly, you know, the tape slowed down a little bit or something to get a little more of a chorusy effect. But you know, the acoustic guitar was always part of the windbreaker stuff. So even when you had a song like that, then we put the acoustic on it because that's just <laughs> what we did. <laughs> so, but even with only eight tracks to work with, right, you're still recording all to individuals, you know, you got, or was this more? That, yeah, that one was done on 24. Okay, um, so so you don't have to worry about, there's no, I mean, I had a whole album where like, okay, the four of us will play live two two tracks, a stereo track. We can't fix it later because we need the other two tracks for vocals. You know, it was a four track and we need the other two tracks for vocals and could do some bouncing with that. But like, it had to be first generation, do a live stereo mix, basically. I don't know, were you at, at that point ever? And, or you, it seemed like you always had a little better tech than that at your disposal. The Crawdad album was done on 8-track, but most stuff, 
like the first time we recorded with Mitch in early 80s, he had a 16 track at the drive-in studio in Winston-Salem. So we got pretty used to 16 or 24 tracks right off the bat. But Bobby and I both, you know, had the, when they came out, the little TAC Porta Studios. Yeah. So we were used to bouncing stuff to make demos at home. And before we that, Bobby had two cassette decks. He would dub from one to the other. So we were used to that approach for making demos, but definitely once we got in the studio, it was, you know, it was like going into a, a toy store. It was just, it was know, a luxury. It was a luxury, but it was just also like, oh my goodness, especially the first time we recorded with Mitch, there was this guy that we'd go like, well, you know that thing on that so-and-so record? He'd go like, yeah, they did it like this. You go, like, well, what about that? Oh yeah, we should do this. And so he kind of knew all those techniques. And that was when I looked up and went, oh yeah, this making record stuff is fun. I'm going to do a lot of this, <laughs> you know, that was a really great experience to have early on. So is it still the case though, that you want to go to a professional studio as opposed to, since it's just you guys just investing in the mics and making the space so you could just record all day if you want to, like, does it still go? No, no, go to a studio is a special thing that you only do a few hours at a time because you're paying for it as opposed to doing the home route. Has there been a home album somewhere in your catalog? We would have no idea where to start recording ourselves. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I mean, we would know how to record ourselves, but I don't have any interest in being an engineer and sitting around worrying about compressors and things like that. I prefer to look, let the people who are interested in that do it. If I, over, you know, after the Windbreakers, Bobby Sullivan made a bunch of solo records at home and he got really into it, especially once the digital, you know, the Pro Tools kind sure. of thing came around. And he just was into it. He and he got it. really good at it. And he was great at it, but he, he was all about it. Whereas for me, I had a pretty extensive like eight-track home demo set up in the late 80s. And then I just realized one day I was fleshing out ideas that I'd go in the studio and replicate because I didn't have the gear or the knowledge to make things that sounded like records sure. at home, but I could make these really good demos. But then it dictated too much what was going to happen in the studio. So... I really prefer to, you know, let the studio be more spontaneous. And with what we do now, we work with a song and we play it and practice and live until we're happy with where it's at. And then we record it. So the, the basic thing is there, but it's usually solid enough that, you know, you can really screw with it at that point and do, you know, add things or take things away even. Can't take away a lot with the two-piece band, but it just gives you more flexibility to have that sort of solid base to something. Mm -hmm. So you're not bored enough yet to just like remix those demos and put them out as another, as a time capsule, as another uh, album for the no. deep, deep Tim, uh, Tim Lee really fans. Needs to hear the, um, I, yeah, somebody, I think uh, Jim Huey at Paisley Pop Records got a bunch of those cassettes from me at one point. I think he may have even digitized them, but I don't think I ever got a copy. <laughs> so. <laughs> So Dead Guy Story off your solo album, Concrete Dog, 2006. Of course, one of the reasons my ears perked up at this, it's not the Tim Lee 3 yet, but yet we have a Sue vocal. We haven't heard from you much. You didn't play on the last two songs, but you got to be a witness to all this stuff. I mean, was there I did. Uh, a thought? I mean, what was the point at which, why was it at that point where you said, you know, I actually want to start learning an instrument and be in this thing Whereas it sounds like from the book that even very early on, like you guys were traveling together and you were checking out the local scenes together. Like you were very into it in spirit, at least up to a point. Yeah, because 
it never had occurred to me my entire growing up and, you know, almost adult life that I could be so audacious to, you know, learn how to play an instrument and play in a band. I mean, I, I took piano lessons when I was a kid, just like thousands and thousands and millions of, of kids did. But it literally did not even occur, ever occur to me until, oh, was it 2002 or Sometime right, something right after like the that? Century. Yeah, uh, right. Early double knocks. I literally woke up one Saturday morning like lightning had struck me. And I sat up in bed and I said, I want to learn how to play bass. And he almost didn't say a word. He got out of bed, got dressed, and went to a pawn shop and bought me a cheap little Dano and started teaching me how to play. I mean, it was... And she was a natural from the start, though. Six yeah. months later, she was on stage. It yeah. was that quick. So by this time, Concrete Dog, were you playing bass on this recording? Do you recall? Uh, was yeah, it? Did I? Yeah, okay. Was okay. Yeah. The, when I started making solo records again in the early 2000s, I did that under the house record with just these guys I was hanging out with. We would just have these like Thursday night drinking sessions where we made this record. And it's a cool record, but it's got some, it's pretty shaky because it's me kind of getting back into it. But then the next record was No Discretion, and Susan played on all of that one. Mm -hmm. But with Concrete Dog, you were, you started writing. We started co-writing. Yeah, yeah. Because Dead Guy's story was literally, I mean, it was a kind of a post-Katrina thing. We were we were having dinner one night, and, and you said something about, you know, seeing something on the news where somebody said, everybody's got a dead guy story. And we basically went home and wrote that song and another one that's on that record called Get Up, Get Up. Yeah. And we're both kind of the same thing. But I want to say that one... Yeah, we had that conversation and we went home and I started making it up and mm -hmm. and you took it and ran with it. Yeah. But it was also during that those sessions where you started singing because we were working with our friend Don Coffey Jr. who was playing drums and recording. And and at one point we were talking about a backing vocal on something and he just and it could possibly have even been this song. He turned to Susan and said, why don't you go in there and do it? <laughs> And she, she was like, you think I could? And he's like, I was terrified. And he was like, hell yeah, you could. So, so you hadn't been singing along with records and things like for years before that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've been doing that my whole life. Yeah, but, it, you know, actually being the, the singer in a song was was terrifying. <laughs> I mean, he, I literally made him come into the booth with me <laughs> and hold my hand while I sang because I was, I was terrified. Well, you but know, then you did it. And it I did good. it. I mean, yep. as a punk guy, and I got to really recommend, I'll say the first two thirds of the book as being very inspirational is what, what you said before that, you know, <laughs> you've had to work at everything that it makes it sound like, I and mean, obviously you're talented natively, but the way that you put it is like, I wasn't the best singer in my family. I had to just get a book, how to play lead guitar and learn how to play lead <laughs> guitar from it. And it's just a matter of practicing a lot. And I couldn't naturally write songs. And, you know, I've, I've heard your first song, like, yeah, it, there was a lot of room to grow from that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's really inspirational. Like, if you want to do this, you can do this. It's only when you then, you kept the moods of the various stages of your life very focused on those chapters. Like, you're reliving it as you're writing it because it's so hopeful and yet, you know, chaotic. But then you get to the point of, wow, I haven't had, like, a band member stay with me for more than two years for my entire career. And now things are starting to dry up. And now my wife is saying, don't tour anymore. This is, 
(laughs) you know, at least the way you describe it yourself, you know, I was very selfish. I was neglecting, you know, just it's what the the touring musician, the Faustian bargain that they have to make of you're probably going to get divorced. That's just the way it works. But then it's got a happy ending after the sad ending that, you know, (laughs) oh, no, actually, you don't have to make that choice because through this miracle, your wife, (laughs) Sue, jumps on board and actually, you know. The enthusiasm that clearly you had throughout being supportive, you know, now actually is doing this together. And that's just, I don't want to say inspirational because it seems too miraculous. Like, I'm not going to pick a spouse <laughs> on that basis. It's too late for me. I'm. <laughs> that's been the cool thing because when I started kind of getting away from stuff, I really felt like I had done everything I was going to do in music as far as accomplishing anything. And you know, any other things I might do would be artistically, not commercially or whatever. Not that I had much commercial success anyway, but then when Susan got excited about doing it, then for me, it was like, Oh, cool. Then I can do this again, but through somebody else's eyes in a way. So while I wasn't seeing anything I hadn't seen before, Susan was seeing stuff she hadn't seen before. And I got to enjoy it, you know, alongside her. And that's, that's been the, that's been why, you know, 20 years later, we're still doing it. Because it's just, it's a lot of joy and fun in doing this. Mm-hmm. There's no rational reason to do it. You know, it's pretty dumb at the end of the day, but, <laughs> but we love doing it. So we do. And we're the perfect couple <laughs> to do dumb stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you need somebody to do dumb stuff, we're it. <laughs> All right. Well, we can't leave on quite such a happy note because dead guy story. I mean, you say this is reflecting <laughs> Katrina. I was yes. reading it in the context of the end of the book where you've reached the point now where so much of the book is, I don't want to say name dropping, but it's it's mentioning all the people that you got to get in touch with, all the bands that you played that's with, all the in, friends. That's why there's an index. Yes, all the friends that you make. And now, inevitably, you've reached the age where they're dropping like flies. And so it just, you know, the the, the last couple chapters of the book are heavy into particular. Oh, and this person has cancer. And then we did a benefit for this person who died. And that, you know, that there's only going to be more of that, I guess. But that's uh, pretty steady. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> is, is, am I reading that into the dead guy story thing? Or is that part of the no, that's actually part of why this is a, a universal song. Because everybody knows that somebody, you know, especially when you get to a certain age, that that uh, is a, is a gaping hole in your life. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I think that's what I've always liked about songs is that, in theory, they should be something that anybody can apply whatever meaning or definition to it that they want or what they, you know, what they experience from it. Because, you know, like a song where everybody gets the exact same thing out of it is not particularly interesting most of the time. And I think it's like when the MTV era came along and all of a sudden every song had a video. I really hated that in a lot of ways. I mean, it was cool to see music on television and all that, but I hated this notion that when I heard a song, my mental image was defined for me. So I think whatever anybody reads into any song is completely legitimate. And and I've known people who are like, this song is very specifically about this. And to me, that particular song is pretty specifically about Katrina, but I think it can apply to mortality in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. All right. Now that I brought things down, let's wrap up. Thanks so much for talking to me. <laughs> it yeah. was a, a Should we pleasure. sit here and look really serious for a minute? <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
a pleasure going through the material. And yeah, and, and I hope you get some of the, I know you don't own a lot of these things. In fact, I was Howard Wolfing, who has booked many guests for me. That I saw you that you guys had actually done a record together. And I asked him about it. And he's like, oh, the person who owns those masters is dead. You know, we don't know how, <laughs> there's no way that record is ever going to come out again. Even whole Windbreakers albums, I'm not, see, you know, they're not on the streaming services yet. Let me put it that way. So it made it a little easier for me to prep in that not everything was available. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, and the Windbreaker stuff more or less has reverted back to us. Okay. And, and, you know, so there may be some of that down the line. I don't know. Right now it's all up in air, especially since Bobby died last year. So, you know, there's a little more effort into getting Bobby solo stuff out in the world right now than, than worrying about the windbreaker stuff. Even further down, uh, any, any final inspirational <laughs> thoughts, Sue, before we hear dead guy story and say goodbye here? Well, you know, women, women will see me play young women, you know, women, my age, whatever, will see me play uh, drums. And they're like, they're like, Oh, I wish I could, you know, I wish I could do that, but I'm too old or something like that, you know? And I'm like, Lord, I was a grown-ass human being when I, like, well, grown-ass human being before I started playing bass or drums. And I always said, it's it's never too late. Just, you know, just do it. You know, Nike, just do it, you know, (laughs) kind of thing. Because because you can do it. If I can do it, if I can figure out how to play with four different limbs and it comes out to a rhythm that goes in a song. Then, and you sing on top of that. Well, and I can yeah. sing on, anybody can do it. Anybody can do it. Seriously. Well, they say, you know, everybody wow. who saw the, <laughs> everybody who saw the Velvet Underground play immediately went out and, and started a band. I guess, Tim, you weren't quite as good as the Velvet Underground because it took her 20 years before she actually did that. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know. I tried. I tried. He did try. He did try. I just never had the, I guess, the confidence in myself, you know, until much later. All right. I hope the record does well for you. Here we are. Dead Guy Story from Concrete Dog. So long. Everybody's got a dead guy story. Everybody's got to tell the tale Everybody's got their worries And everybody's got a soul to sell But I don't mind That's just the way it is
Thanks so much to Tim and Sue. I really enjoy these two-person interviews. They seem, in general, much more fun, like a little party. And it's great to see the interaction, even in an interview format, of this duo. Again, you can get information at bark-loud.com about all their new doings. Also, timlee3.com. And if you really want to get a handle on Tim's vast discography, you'll just have to poke around discogs.com and allmusic.com the way I did. While not every album of his has been released, he's got two substantial compilation albums of early solo stuff on the one hand and Windbreaker songs on the other. So you can get a good sense of what he was doing during those periods. And of course, let me plug again, Tim's book, I Saw a Dozen Faces and I Rocked Them All, The Diary of a Never Was from 2021. Next time on this podcast, you'll hear me talk to Tom Heyman the San Francisco journeyman guitarist. In the 90s, he played with a band called Go To Blazes. He's well known for playing steel guitar on albums by folks like Alejandro Escovedo. And now he releases rather Dylan-esque, very literary, very melodic tunes. So make sure you're subscribed directly to the podcast at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, which will make sure you get all the episodes. And if you want to support the effort and get an ad-free feed in my episode notes, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic to sign up for the feed there. Hope you're all doing well. I was out of the country for a couple of weeks, having a lovely time in Italy, doing the touristy things. I wrote a song while I was walking around there. I've since met again with my new band, which is getting ever closer to having a playable set list, starting some recordings. If you want to hear all the newly written tunes that have come up with in the last couple of years, you can friend me on Facebook or just look up Mark Lintz Dry Folk there to find my page. I hope you are staying creative or at least bearing well the slings and arrows of misfortune. It is hard to keep positive in these days of war and atrocity. So I hope Tim and Sue's music or my music or some music will help you on that journey. Keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark Lintz and Meyer signing off.